Hello, my friends. Michael Youssef here, and I just wanted to thank you for connecting with Leading the Way. Our entire team is wholly committed to passionately proclaiming uncompromising truth of God's Word, and it cannot be done without you. Learn more about what God has charged us to do around the world by clicking around ltw.org. That's ltw.org. Thank you, and may God richly bless you as you seek to serve Him. We're about to celebrate the birthday of this greatest nation on the face of the earth. And so many people are saying, this is not the America that I knew. This is not the America that was envisioned by the founding fathers. This is not the America so many people have fought and died for. One politician calls for violence against law enforcement officers. Another politician calls for attacks on government officials. Our politicians and the media seem to have conspired to wish economic destruction upon America. We have no longer heeding the lesson that was taught to us by Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. of nonviolence, protest, of peaceful protest. What is worse is that now, right now, we are protecting the rights of the criminals and the lawbreakers and safeguard against their rights and ignore the victims and undermine their rights. And this is to say nothing of the millions of whose blood was shed in the abortion mills in the last 40 years. Today, immorality is glorified, and morality is scorned. Today, speaking the truth is considered to be hate speech. Christians are openly and publicly persecuted in America, something we could never have imagined only a few years ago. They are dragged into courts for their biblical convictions. Some of them have lost their entire life savings. Many an executive and employees, both in the government and in the private sector, have lost their jobs whenever they speak the truth, biblical truth, and they take a stand on it. Tolerance has come to mean celebrating every perversion known to man while despising biblical truth. We have moved from being the greatest creditor nation to being the greatest debtor nation. We have come a long way since that day when 56 good and decent men signed their declaration of dependence on the Almighty God when they said with firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. These were not idle words. These were not a form of rhetoric or high-sounding phrases. These 56 men knew that if they succeeded at best, it would mean many years of hardship and struggle years of diligently nurturing of this greatest experiment known in history. If they failed, they would have had to face the hangsman noose as traitors. Beloved, history testifies, clearly testifies, that very few of them have survived very long after they signed that declaration of dependence on the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Five of them were captured during the Revolutionary War. Twelve of them have their homes looted and ransacked and burned. One saw his son killed in the war. One saw his two sons captured. Nine of the 56 died during that war. These were brave men and women who gave us the greatest nation on the face of the earth. And they depended on God. They depended on God to give us all of the blessings that we're enjoying now and the blessings that sadly so many people take for granted. Sadly, others have failed to even appreciate. And yet, in reality, we are in danger of losing that liberty, of losing that freedom, and all the blessings that they lived and died in order to hand to us. Why did they do this? Well, these men knew that to be born free and live free is a privilege. But even more, they also knew that to die free is an awesome responsibility. If you listen to me for any length of time, you would know, or even if you read my books, you would know that this legal immigrant, this legal immigrant, I am one grateful dude to the United States of America. In fact, just in case you don't know, that it is that stewardship and that gratitude and the feeling of the privilege compels me to write the books that I have been writing. If you read my book, The Hidden Enemy, you would have read that the greatest enemy is not is not militant secularists or even militant Islamists serious and dangerous, as you would have read the details and the facts in the book. But the greatest, which is the hidden enemy, is apathy and non-involvement on the part of Americans. But before I go on, I want to say something at the outset, because I want to avoid getting letters or emails. I want you to listen to me very carefully. No, I am not confusing America with my ultimate home in heaven. No, I am not confusing my privilege of being a citizen of this great country with the highest privilege of all of being a citizen of heaven. No, I am not confusing my earthly home with my eternal home. I'm saying this because there are some nitwits out there in the social media who have accused me of idolatry. They call my patriotism and my love for this country is idolatry, and they think that I'm confused about the difference of my eternal salvation and my citizenship. I want to tell them I am not confused. They are. (laughs) So how do we live in such times? and difficulties that we're seeing night after night in the news? Well, I don't have the answer, but the Bible, the Word of God has the answer. How would a faithful citizen, how is a godly man, a woman, boy or girl, live in this earthly country? Well, in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29, verse 4, the Bible gives us the answer. But before I read the passage, or that short passage from the Scripture, 
I need to place it in a historical context. Always put the Scripture in its context. After years, decades of God pleading with His people Israel, a nation that He loved, that He protected, even when they went into slavery in Egypt for 400 years, and He brought them miraculously, supernaturally out into the promised land. After years of pleading with them to worship only the living God, to cease from worshiping Baal, to cease from worshiping Esther, after years of God warning His people of the consequences of living a compromised life, they go to the temple on Saturday, but then they live for Baal in between Saturdays. Finally, the Lord, not the king of Babylon, but the Lord, brought judgment on Israel. This is the apple of His eye. This is the people whom He loved and redeemed from the slavery of Egypt. He allowed the most uh, terroristic and the most uh, vicious, savage nation on the face of the earth at that time to terrorize His own people. And He allowed them to go into captivities, into exile. His people, yes, because of their rebellion and their stubbornness, refusing to turn to the one living God. Himirat, please. When God finally brought about the judgment upon Israel, and they ended up in Babylon, now there, in captivities, God began to speak to them through the prophet Jeremiah. And that is where I want you to turn now to Jeremiah 29, beginning at verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those, listen to this, I, can you say I? I. All those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. You see, I am not trying to get God into Madison Avenue and market Him for what He's not. I'm not trying to give God a, a facelift, because the God of grace and mercy is also the God of judgment. And if you ever miss one of those two, you are worshiping a different God. Our God is a God both of mercy and grace, but also a God of judgment. Verse 5, He said to them, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, and eat what you produce. Verse 7, also seek the peace and the prosperity of the city which, again, I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, that is Babylon. Think about this. God is asking the Israelite captives to pray for Babylon, because if it prosper, you will prosper. So much for those Christians who just say, well, I'm only passing through. I don't need to get involved. I am just passing through this life. I cannot get involved in the political process. Those who say, I can't be involved in these earthly matters. I'm heading to heaven. As C.S. Lewis said, when people used to accuse Christians of being so heavenly-minded that if no earthly good, he said, only those who are heavenly-minded are of any earthly good. And I want to say amen to that. God told them, to be good citizens, though they were in a foreign land. They were in exile. They were in captivity. Think about this. They were not privileged to live 
in a land like this, they were not privileged to live in a, in a land that was founded by good and decent people. They were not a, a, in a land that was founded on biblical foundations. Uh, the Israelites were living in Babylon, the most vicious and savage people on the face of the earth. A Babylon, which we are slowly but surely seem to be becoming one. God forbid. God forbid. So I have a question for you. What is God saying to them? And what can we learn from them as we go along in our pilgrimage? He's telling these faithful people to be involved and be good citizens. He calls them to be good stewards, even though they are in a foreign land, even though they are in captivities, even though they are in exile. God told them to pray for the peace of Babylon. I know we hear in the Scripture about praying for the peace of Jerusalem, but did you ever see God saying to His people, pray for the peace of Babylon? In fact, this is the first time in the Old Testament that you hear God asking His people, the apple of His eye, to pray for their captors. Verse 7, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city in which I carried you into exile. Hear me right, please. In reality, all genuine believers, if you are a Bible-believing Christian, if you are a person who believes that there is no other way to heaven other than Jesus Christ, if Jesus is the Savior of your soul and the Lord of your life, all of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, in many ways we are exiles in this earth, regardless of where we live in the world. We are sojourners. We are travelers to heaven. It is what you do during your pilgrim's journey is what determines your heavenly reward. Today, we have some misguided people on both sides of the spectrum. Listen, I'm an equal opportunity offender, <laughs> just in case you did not know this. We have misguided people on both sides of the spectrum. On the one side, we have those who hate America, and it breaks my heart. If you told me that 40 years ago, I wouldn't believe it. Anybody be in America, hate America. But we're seeing it now with our own eyes. There are some who wish America harm. And there's some personality on television comes in night after night calling for the demise of America, a popular media guy. Some say that, uh, which is the other side of the spectrum, America has sinned too deeply for God to intervene. And America deserves judgment. But God said, not what they said, what God said, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Babylon, we are to pray that God would have mercy on America, not its downfall. We are to intercede for God, to intervene, not to wait for its downfall. We are to contend in prayer that America will return to its roots not go along to get along. We are to lovingly call men and women, boys and girls, not to wring their hands, but to pray for America. We are to pray and pay any price that is required to speak the truth lovingly, carefully, thoughtfully, and leading men and women into the truth. We are to pray for a genuine Holy Spirit awakening so that the churches that have departed from the truth of the gospel may return to the truth. <laughs> Seek the peace of America. Defend the godly ideals of the founding fathers. Don't give in to those who seek its demise. Don't 
Take the blessings of freedom for granted. Don't think we're just something that is owed to us. No, somebody paid a price for the freedom we have. Get informed of the candidates and vote. And don't stay home. Vote. For God's sake, vote. (laughs) I am absolutely amazed at times when I read history. As many of you know, I'm an amateur historian. And I'm just amazed at the prophetic statements that have been spoken about our day many years ago. And this is not by prophets and not by pastors and not by preachers, uh, but by uh, political leaders. Abraham Lincoln had warned us that America will never be defeated by invading armies, but by the apathy of its citizen. Many have warned and pleaded for the future generation to nurture and protect this fragile stewardship Even a hundred years after the America's birth, it was 1876, President James A. Garfield was speaking to Congress, and he issued a sober warning, and I want you to put this in the light of today. Listen to what he said to these lawmakers. Now, more than ever before, the people, the people are responsible for the character of their Congress. Did you get that? We are responsible. Now, remember this when you vote. We're responsible for the character of the Congress. If this body continues on, if this body, referring to the elected politicians, be ignorant, reckless, or corrupt, it is because the people tolerated ignorance, recklessness, and corruption. If it be intelligent, brave, and pure, it is because people demanded these high qualities to represent them. Then he added, if the next hundred years does not find us a great nation, it will be because those who represented the enterprise, the culture, the morality of the nation did not aid in controlling the political forces. End of quote. Amen. I wish that prophecy is not being coming true. We're seeing it before our own eyes. We who truly know the Lord, listen to me, those of us who truly know the Lord have the responsibility, now I want to say double responsibility, to be good model citizens of this great nation. Why? Because we know that our God is a great God. Because we know that our God is a God can do great things in response to the prayers of His people. Historians have described the declining of great civilizations and nations in the following manner. Listen carefully. They go from bondage to faith, from faith to courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to selfishness, from selfishness to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependence, and from dependence all the way back to bondage. Lord forbid. In fact, again, my book, The Hidden Enemy, I fear that we have entered that stage of apathy. My God, have mercy on America. My God, have mercy on America. When we went from the greatest creditor nation to the greatest debtor nation, we have entered the apathy stage. Question, what can give us hope? What can give us hope in the midst of our condition in which we're in? Our God is the God who loves and hears and answers prayer of His faith-filled people. 
Do you believe that? I want to give you an example. Twenty years prior to President Garfield making that speech in Congress, which I already quoted, America was experiencing a terrible economic downturn. There was a run on the banks. It was known as the Panic of 1857. It was far worse depression than the 1920s. Unemployment was sky high. Banks were closing. The economy was in shambles. People were angry and frustrated. Life became unbearable. But then there was a man, just one man. He was not a preacher. He was not a pastor. He was not an evangelist. He was a layman. Can you say layman with me? That's you. (laughs) You see, this is the problem. There are so many people sitting in the pews thinking, well, the people in the pulpit should do it. Now, we preach the truth. You know that. But it is your responsibility. It is your God-given responsibility to make a difference. This man recognized there is only one answer to the tragic condition of his country at the time. This man believed that the power of God and the transformation of man's heart is the only answer that could save the nation. And so on September 23, 1857, this layman from the Dutch Reformed Church in northern Manhattan placed a small ad in the newspaper, very small, announcing a lunchtime meeting for prayer for America and for Americans in the small room in his church. The first meeting drew six people. It was on a weekly lunchtime hour. Six people out of one million residents of New York. The following week, they got 14. The following week, they got 23. So they decided to start praying daily instead of weekly. And that prayer meeting continued until 18. 58 in March, which six months. By that time, there were 5,000 prayer groups or meeting in neighboring churches and in public halls and in adjacent buildings. Horace Greeley was the famous editor in that time. He wanted to know and get reports on what really is happening in these churches. So he sent one reporter on a horse and buggy to cover as many churches as possible during that one hour of prayer. And this reporter covered 12 of the many meetings. He counted 6,100 people were meeting in prayer. And then the landslide of prayer ensued. People began to commit their lives to Christ without a preacher. Maybe that's the answer. (laughs) Often they get in the way. 10,000 a week were coming to Christ in New York City alone. Church bells would ring 8 a.m. and 12 noon and 6 p.m., and people would show up and pray. The revival went up the Hudson River, down the Mohawk River. In one year, more than one million people came to Christ. The revival then crossed the Atlantic and went to Northern Ireland and Scotland and Wales and small parts of England and and even went all the way to South India. The effect of that revival was felt for 40, that's 40 years. In 1905, 
25% of the student body at Yale University were meeting in a Bible study and prayer. The Atlantic City, the gambling city in New Jersey, out of 50,000 population, they could only count 50 people who were not converted to Christ. In Portland, Oregon, 240 store owners pledged to each other to close their shops between 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. No, not for a siesta, but for prayer. Five years later, J.P. Morgan wrote a small book debunking the revival. Well, wait till you hear why he was debunking it. He was a godly man, so he was not really negative to be negative for sake. He said, out of the 100,000 people in the city of New York alone who came to Christ during the revival, 80,000 of them remained in churches. I got news for you. I would take those statistics anytime. time. 80% remain active in churches. I don't know about you, but we need to pray again. In Wales, judges were presented with white gloves for they had no cases to try. No rapes, no robberies, no murders, no embezzlement. The district council held an emergency meeting to wonder what would we do with the police. Here is the reason why, while I have prayed and I continue to pray for a Holy Spirit awakening, I have a nagging feeling, and this is only personal, because not thus says the Lord, it's not from the Word of God, that unless, unless God intervenes, we won't see it. As long as we have a social program for every ill in society, as long as we place our hopes on political parties, as long as we look to guidance from godless celebrities, as long as we look to the government for help, as long as we seek other things and not God alone, as long as we come to God only when we need something and we want to pray fervently if we need or want something from God, and then we take off when our needs are met, we will not experience this incredible awakening for which I prayed for more than 40 years. I was privileged in 1977 to sit at the feet of the man who was recognized globally as the greatest authority on the history of revivals, J. Edwin Orr. If you see any book by J. Edwin Orr, read it. A wonderful Irishman was living in California at the time. He realized what I've been praying for, and I reached out to him, and he reached out to me, and I had the privilege of sitting at his feet and learning all that I can learn. And in fact, it fueled my prayer life. Now he's gone to be with the Lord. Beloved, that is why in seeking the peace of the city. We must pray. We must pray urgently. We must pray diligently, intentionally, and we must pray in faith by placing our whole faith, a whole trust, squarely on the one who can renew our days of old. Can I get an amen? amen. My beloved friends, we may not right now be facing economic catastrophe But I can tell you, and any person who's spiritually sensitive will know what I'm talking about, we are facing the greatest disastrous moral catastrophe in the history of America. Question, why did God allow the Babylonians, the barbarians, to terrorize His own people? 
because they have forsaken the one true God. Jeremiah said they ran away from God and they began to dig systems that are not producing any water. Why is terrorism is always lurking for us in the West, always lurking in the background, ready to terrorize us? It's God's way of saying, if you think that you can live and do things and succeed without me, you will not know peace. Oh, dear God, have mercy. May we wake up in time and call upon the Lord, the God of heaven, to revive America again. May we wake up in time before it's too late. May we wake up in time before God says, I've had enough. I've had enough bloodshed. I had enough pride in your immorality. I had enough pride in your abomination. I have enough violence. I had enough of churches rejecting Jesus as the only way to salvation and heaven. May God have mercy on America. Say it with me. May God have mercy on America. Let's say it again. May God have mercy on America. Lord Jesus, I'm going to confess to you what you know, but I'm only confess it publicly so that I testify before my brothers and sisters in Christ. I am sorry. I'm sorry for losing hope at times. I'm sorry for getting exasperated and giving up praying for an awakening. Forgive me. Forgive me for the times when I get despondent. I pray for me and for everyone at the sound of my voice that you may renew us today. Renew our willingness, our desire, and our longing to see you work again in this great land. Father, I pray that you once again, bless America. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. And amen. Amen.